Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. The Tortoise Shack, as you know, has no ads, no sponsors. All of our podcasts come to you completely unfiltered and without the need for us to worry about offending our uh, affiliates, whether they be political or corporate. And that gives us great freedom to be able to have the types of conversations that I don't think you hear anywhere else. But because we have no other income stream, we rely on listeners and we use the Patreon model. So while you're listening to this podcast, click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. Join us and help keep a struggling podcast platform going. There is lots of additional content. It is all plea free, exclusive podcasts, access to our live Sunday shows, all sorts of extras, as I said. But more importantly, I think the work has value. There are thousands of you listening. So if you get something out of it, please give something back. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please join us. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves. And Martin, it's good to see you uh, now, albeit we are facing into, I think, two days of snow oh, and you, you look like you've me. started early. You know me, there isn't a pick left on me, Tony. So cold weather in me. And, I, and you know me, I'm generally quite warm. At the moment, I'm wearing Kota, Gansey, scarf, hat, socks. I even have trousers on today. Don't if any. <laughs> Folks, generally, when we get to about June or July, he's sitting there in a house coat. So just <laughs> just be grateful. It's only an audio format. That's mm. all I can say to you. Um, I will want to say that, by the way, before we kick off um, the eviction ban in Ireland, obviously, the, the government had decided to heartlessly lift it, despite what's happened over the last few months and despite what's happened is going to happen at the end of March. Uh, but there is a petition. Whether you believe the petition can change much or not, they have to reply, to respond to it, get the question asked, and it is available on Uplift, and the link will be in this podcast. So I'm asking you, if you're listening, uh, sign it and share it. That's all we can ask of you because you know there's, there's a lot going on, but don't let's not lose uh, sight on the homelessness crisis. Three and a half thousand homeless children in Ireland currently, and that's just not good enough. Anyway, um, we are delighted, and I mean absolutely delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in quite some time by director with UglyMugs.ie, Lucy Smith. Lucy, it's good to see you. How are you keeping? I'm good, thank you. It's nice. It's thanks for thanks for this. We're about to have a very interesting conversation, but want to put on the record, Lucy, you helped uh, you helped today make make it happen. So thank you for that. Um, and the reason why uh, it's it's kind of a bit special is we're joined by uh, the guy behind the Spy Cops Info podcast and as a campaigner against police surveillance, uh, Tom Fowler. And Tom, uh, in this realm, you're kind of the guy. It's great to see you. Hi, uh, how's it going? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, like, I suppose, I, mean, I, I didn't mean to be. I kind of <laughs> fell into it. Like, I had no great desire to be, I'll be honest. But, uh yeah. Yeah, I, I, su- I suppose. Okay, so we're, there's four people here now, and we're all familiar with the the idea of the spy cops and what what the story is. But to to listeners who are just coming on this fresh, um, listen to this today. Then go back and listen to uh to, to Tom's podcast series. But Tom, can you just give us a kind of overview so we can, before we kick off? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess like when we talk about spy cops, obviously, um, in the history of the British state, like surveillance of political movements goes back a really long way. But when we talk about spy cops, we're generally specifically talking about two units, the Special Demonstration Squad and the National Public Order Intelligence Unit. Um, the, the Special Demonstration Squad was the first unit. It was formed in 1968 uh, following the, um, the the anti-Vietnam War protest in the May of that year 
um, in, in Grosvenor Square, where the crowd, the police lost complete control of the crowd, and they nearly managed to storm the American embassy. Um, the next day, there was an extraordinary meeting between the Home Secretary and various senior members of the Met Police. Um, there's a lot of like like police legend about how that meeting went. There's this sort of like romantic version given by Conrad Dixon, the guy who set up the unit, that like give me ten good men, half a million pounds a year, and this will never happen again. Uh, and they set out from there um, initially just to break the Vietnam Solidarity uh, campaign, um, which they kind of successfully did fairly quickly. Um, but then they never went away, uh, and then they continued for the next fifty years. Um, by the two, like mid two thousands, they were um, they were like superseded. Uh, they were not replaced by the National Public Order Intelligence Unit. Um, but they made sure they, you know, there were senior police officers who claimed that no protest took place in London without either a overt or a covert police presence. Uh, and in the vast majority of those cases, you know, we, we're talking about covert police presences. Um, up to it was, it was ten active officers and undercover at any given time. Um, they would go undercover for, for about a period of five years where they would completely uh, infiltrate um, the lives of, um, of campaign groups, protest groups. Uh, we're talking overwhelmingly on the left, anti-fascist groups, anti-war groups, environmental groups, um, feminist groups. Animal um, campaign, animal rights campaigners. Animal uh, rights campaigners, yeah. Anybody uh, who's generally associated with... Um anarchism anybody who was yeah. you know yeah huge Notab like notably not the far right uh until much later on when they is kind there, of felt embarrassed reason, into doing it is there a reason for that tom well i mean like uh i mean there's there, <laughs> there's no official reason um i mean the, the reason that we've heard from undercover police officers who've been forced to give evidence to the undercover policing inquiry over the last year or two have said the reason for that was was that the national front which was the main group in the 1970s um didn't pose any sort of threat um i mean that flies in the face not to, of not, the to, not to white people it didn't certainly <laughs> well right you're not not to establish law and order not to to the, the, the british state um you know i mean like there was there was tremendous amounts of violence i mean I, I think there's plenty of other people who know better than me the um the violence of the far right in the 1970s in the uk um but the, the implication here though is what martin is getting at is political policing and i think that'll be a topic we may return to even as we go on in this in this podcast but back to the actual origins so say say there's 10 guys out there they're they're infiltrating these movements they're you know, not just this, this isn't a matter of them just rocking up and attending a few rallies. This is fully embedded to the point whereby mm. they've started lives in, in these communities mm. and, and, and ruined lives. Tom, you, can, can mm. we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it was a bit haphazard at the beginning, but within a few years, they developed like a, a tradecraft, um, which there was a document, the, um, the SDS tradecraft manual, which, um, a very redacted version of which has been released by the inquiry, which kind of gives you an idea of their sort of, um, methodology. Um, they would start off, they would uh, go to, down to St. Catherine's house and they would find, um, somebody who had a, a birthday around theirs, around the same age, um, ideally with the same first name who died when they were young. Um, and they would take that identity. Um, they would go to the home of the parents. They would work out where that person would have gone to school, um, work out where they might have ended up in work and really take on that entire identity and present it as their own. Uh, they call this, this the jackal the, run. They call it jackal run. And, and, and mm. they, they also call it uh, creating a legend. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, 
Uh, they they uh, called it squatting on the poor unfortunate is uh, in the in the tradecraft manual. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, I mean, like uh, one of the, one of the groups who's been um, like represented at the inquiry is has been the families of those people who's who's you know who died in childbirth or who died very young. Um, and I mean, it's, it's just an extra layer of tragedy. You know, it, it isn't just the name. A lot of people think this, they just took these names. It, it's not just that they took the names. They took the whole identity, you know, and like kind of, I, I think you know, any sort of, um, any sort of parent who loses a child is going to daydream about what the life they could have had. And then someone comes along and then pretends to have that life. And, and yeah, was, sets that as a legend. They were so embedded, Tom, that, that they even mm. had relationships where they had children with people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, so it, it, initially they started off going into groups like kind of, you know, picking up leaflets, going on to demonstrations, that sort of thing. But fairly quickly, they sort of realized that it was much more effective rather than infiltrating groups. They infiltrated the lives of people within those groups. So it wasn't so much like kind of, I mean, early on, you see a lot of them becoming treasurers or secretaries of groups. And some of them did that really effectively. But, um, over, over time, it just became they, they just became people's boyfriends uh, mostly, um, and used that as their way into the group. And yet, in some cases, in a number of cases, um, they went on to to father children. Um, you know, yeah, children which they had no um, no intention of sticking around for. Um, and it, yeah, it had to be. I mean, for for those people that were involved in the relationships with these people, that had to be an absolute gutting experience a gutting gutting experience i mean you can understand the hurt you can understand why the push for full truth mm. yeah absolutely i mean it, it's I mean, it's one of those scars which i don't think ever really heals because it's so it's so fundamentally good this isn't just like some fleeting relationship this is you know th- th- these are relationships that went on in some cases for like seven years um, you know, and they also, these men present themselves as the ideal partner to these women, you know, um, and I mean, in some of these, some cases, you know, I don't want to talk about these women's lives, but like, you know, they, they haven't really recovered from that. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you build trusting relationships after that experience? Do you know what I mean? I, I read in one place, though, even one of the, one of the child, I just want to say child, but this, I think is an adult now. Spent spent more than a decade thinking his dad was on the run because uh, he was such this amazing activist who uh, wasn't that he couldn't see him that this was the reason this complete yeah. myth. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, uh, that was Bob Lambert's uh, son. Um, yeah, he was under the impression that his his father was a ALF activist who had had to flee and go underground because he'd been involved in such serious, um, you know. Um, uh, activism and like that, that that he was you know the police were after him um yeah so i mean he grew up under the, under the misconception that that was you know that was that's who his father was when in reality his father was an undercover cop his mother uh, describes the experience as being raped by the state um I mean, if you're interested in the, point, the lives so. of, of the women there's um five of them have got together and written a book called deep deception which mm. i'd really recommend uh which kind of goes much more it it, it it weaves together the stories like in a chronological way and, and shows how they overlapped because, like I say, these men present themselves as like the perfect partner. They had like all this backup. They they, they had so much intelligence on the, on these women that they could uh, construct themselves as this like ideal man who was you know caring, thoughtful. They'd never forget a birthday. They'd never forget an anniversary. They had all the information that like they had like medical records of these women, so they knew. There, you know, there it was, was quite common for them to like 
pretend was, that they'd was... lost a, a parent so that when one of the women were experiencing like um, a bereavement, they would have a story which really, would fit really nicely with what they were experiencing and really be able to like bond with them over that kind of thing. One of the, sorry, Martin, I want to come in. One of the, the things that even you uh, showed, I think, during some of the stuff that you've done is that like you could almost copy and paste well, it probably wasn't even a, the appropriate phrase, but copy and paste the love letters they sent to their their partners, and they could be years apart, but it was the same sort of thing. Is that? Is yeah, that- yeah, very much. I mean, like, yeah, essentially, they, they were working out of a playbook. Um, you got the impression that these these were like uh, on file letters, particularly for the um, the withdrawal process. They had a very um, a very set way of withdrawing. You know, that mm. would involve like a. Uh, mental health problems, some sort of breakdown. They, they'd have planted the seed earlier on about something very traumatic in their life, which would then draw them back to somewhere in another part of the world, which they had to go and find some family members or, you know, something serious. And, you know, there are stories of these men like spinning the fucking, like coming up with these ridiculously long winded stories where they break down and like for hours into the night talking about how, you know, this estranged child, relative, whatever, you know. Well, we um, to think these people were all innocent, Tom. None of them were guilty of anything. None of them had committed a crime. They were innocent citizens. And as you say, being targeted by the state and, and raped by the state is, is actually quite, tr- quite true. When you think of, of the deception that was involved, if that wasn't the state doing it, that's right. Mm. That yeah, absolutely. Right. I think you need, it's what you were, uh, touched on earlier about political policing. I think it's, it's in the eyes of the police, these people were criminals because they see political activism, particularly like, um, what they would call subversive political activism as a form of criminality. Now we're, get, um, we're getting we're getting to the why here. This right. is the why. The big question that is people are listening to this are going. So why are they doing it, Tom? Like why mm. were they knocking on these people's doors? Why were they trying to get into their lives? Tell me your take on why they decided that this, that this was something that they could invest years and years and years into. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of like. Um, so there's the reasons they've given, right? Which is that it was about public order and subversion. And they, they they call back a lot to this one particular protest, which, you know, did get slightly out of hand. There was police officers pulled off their horses, um, you know, like supposedly scaffolding poles used as lances against cops in on that day. Uh, and it was like, this this should never be allowed to happen, you know. Um, this is before the, the formation of special patrol groups. So this is at a time when, you know, public order policing isn't quite sophisticated as we know it now to be, you know. Um, and they were so, so a big part of their justification is around this, you know, dealing with public disorder. Um, actually, what we're learning through the inquiry is, is that they were pretty fucking useless at providing any kind of intelligence that was effective for uniform police on the day of, uh, of you know, uh, public order events. Um, so there's that aspect. But then there's a second aspect, which they refer to as subversion. Uh, and this is really where we see how the the special demonstration squad and special branch more generally, maybe, um, is it just becomes like a, a running, like a messenger boy, a running like a, an intelligence source for MI5. And there's there's a wider um, there's a wider interest of the British establishment to stop like pro working class politics from ever developing properly in this country to making sure we never develop those kind of institutions which could in any way threaten the like aristocratic hegemony that we have in this country 
you know i say this country i live in the uk you know yeah, um, no 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 it's it's actually we like uh, lucy made the point before we came on air that uh, ireland just copied and pasted again there's that phrase again much of your uh, when 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 we when we uh, when we were supposed to get rid of get rid of the brits we kind of just said okay we'll keep all the, the structures and and you know we replaced it we replaced maybe the names at the top of the the top of the 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 board but that's all in many cases so some of this is obviously something and there is an irish angle we'll come to that can i ask you how did you bloody well become involved in this tom so i i was um involved uh, i guess i still vaguely am in the south wales anarchists um who are activist group uh here in south wales um where i'm from and, and still live um we were involved uh, in like um a lot of the like the Direct action, um, anti-authoritarian politics of the 2000s, um, and we were infiltrated uh, by uh, following the um, the G8 summit in Scotland of 2005. In the, so the aftermath of that, a guy called Marco Jacobs uh, ended up joining our group. Uh, he was involved with the group for about four years. Um, he turned out to be an undercover police officer. Whilst he was deployed in that group, he ended up having uh, sex relationships with two members of the group. Um, yeah, we, uh, members, along with those two people, uh, a bunch of us ended up taking like uh, legal action against um, against the Met Police, against South Wales Police, um, and sort of alongside the eight women who were bringing a case uh, against a number of other undercover officers from around that time, we spent seven years going through court, being told we can neither confirm nor deny, being being called like conspiracy theorists for, for a lot of that time. Um, you know, the, the most famous uh, person in that, uh, of the undercover cops was a guy called Mark Kennedy. Um, he was referred to as just some rogue officer. Um, mm -hmm. by the end, you know, by the end of the seven years, it was a rogue unit. Now we're getting into the, the actual detail with the inquiry. It's clear that there was nothing rogue going on whatsoever. This was all known right the way up to the prime minister from the very earliest days. Um, they were doing exactly what, what the you know the state wanted them to do, so yeah, I was just just another. I mean, I would say I think my experience is probably not dissimilar to that of a lot of people. Um, I just know that it happened to me. I think there's a huge number of people who have no idea that their time involved in um, in, in left wing politics of any sort um, was monitored in in this way. Um, Has it left you with a file, Tom? Do you know? Is there a file that exists on you? Because oh, I mean, yeah, this. yeah. I, I think it's fifty-five thousand files. I was in in disclosure. I was I was told about, but then, you know, what 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 is a file? Um, you know, well, if MI six have a file on you, right? That means yeah, so, something, right? Yeah. So registry files are the name of the of the files in question, and in many ways, the registry files are the thing. Um, the SDS kind of they work for MI five, which known as Box five hundred within within this world, but really all of them are working for the registry files. And essentially, if you, if they open a file on you and it's very easy to get a file opened on you. I mean, some people are getting a file opened on them because they bought a copy of socialist worker one day, or they went to a public meeting once, <laughs> or they went to a funeral once, or, mm -hmm. you know, it, it very Describe little is themselves as a populist once. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it would take very little to get yourself um, a registry file opened on you. And once there's a file opened on you, you are a person of interest until you die. So they would continually go back to add to the file. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been you know impossible to access any of the, um, the registry files, but there are so many databases, you know, from the police national computer through to various other like uh, databases that special branch uh, input to, which yeah, anybody who's involved in political activism would have opened on them. And just so so obviously 
this is where it, it, it kicked off for you. But now, you know, as as, as you go along, you, you unfold. It's like peeling the bloody onion and there's layers and there's layers and, and mm. you're coming upon these other things. You've mentioned the, these these brave women who've gotten together and, and you've mentioned the inquiry and how you've had to fight to go through layer after layer. Uh, and you've also mentioned uh, Mark Kennedy. He is a very interesting character, uh, and I say that in the broadest uh, sense of the word. Can you just tell us a few of the things, if you don't mind, that we know that we can say for fact that we've done? And I and I I'll come back to some of the things that have been said to me about what he also did while he, during his time in Ireland as well. Yeah, I mean, probably um, one of the the because um, he was a national public. National Public Order Intelligence Unit officer, which was the second unit. So that the SDS were the first, these were the second unit. Um, yeah, I mean, he was probably one of the, the NPORU officer who had the most connection to Ireland. Um, his wife and kids lived in Ireland. I mean, all these men were married with children, by the way. That was a prerequisite for them to be able to go undercover uh, for the unit. So they would have something to go back to. So whilst they're out there having kids with activists, they've still got a wife and kids at home. That, you that's know. kind of cynical, Tom. Cynical? <laughs> cynical has been... kind of cynical, isn't it? Really and truly mm. cynical. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a fear in case they 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 they'd actually turn, they'd actually yeah, yeah. So there was there was some um, early on there was there was a number of undercover officers who would be in difficult to control and had to be withdrawn because they didn't have enough of an anchor, uh, is what they talked about. Um, So yeah, so uh, Kennedy, um, he was, um, you know, I I forget a lot of the detail, but I mean, he was he was essentially involved in the environmental direct action. He was involved with Earth yeah. First, a lot of campaigns around environmental direct action. Um, he was based in Nottingham for most of the time while he was deployed um, with the Sumac Centre there, um, but really got involved in the sort of um, what was like the, what got referred to as like the summit hopping. You know, these, yeah. these big demonstrations against the G8, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank that were taking place um, all over Europe, well, over the world. But I mean, he mostly was was basing himself around Europe. But he went to you know spent a lot of time in Ireland with the Shelter Sea uh, campaign over in Iceland, Germany, um, the Tarmac Nine in, in France. Well, and in in one of the situations he was involved in. He was uh, he was he provided, I think it was um, helmets to to one side of campaign. Uh, and then on another time, uh, he'd been arrested when the, they reckon when the people who arrested weren't aware what the situation was. That caused great, great, great bit of hassle. And another time he was scheduled to like sleep in a squat, which he happened to not go to. Mm. Uh, this is this is all in this time where we were linked to uh, Shelter Sea, where he went to a squat in Ireland. Then didn't sleep there with his girlfriend, I believe, at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and that place was raided subsequently that night. And he happened mm-hmm. to just not 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 come back to the place that evening. Uh, coincidentally, uh, all of this has implications for UK police acting in in Ireland with whose jurisdiction and on, on, on with, with what with what right to do so and going after Irish activists. It's it's. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And if you think I'm, I'm going getting conspiratorial here, folks. I'm not. Two justice ministers, uh, I think it mm-hmm. was Charlie Flanagan and Francis Fitzgerald, are aware of this and have just more or less said, "Kick it to the Garda," and the Garda said, "We ain't making any comment." So mm. we don't even know how how far how far this goes down. Nor do we know if we have similar practices. And I know again, Lucy's on the on the on the call, and Lucy probably able to say to me, Tony, "Yeah, well, we know that you know from." Our anecdotally, we 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 know that cer- certain things are happening already here, but it's just it's just terrifying, Tom, that we can see that, and yet 
you're going through an inquiry process. We're just supposed to shrug and say, look, no mm. comment. Mm. I mean, just the, the inquiry has um, purposefully limited itself to England and Wales. Um, so even though, you know, these officers were active in Scotland after active in Northern Ireland, active all over Europe, active in the Republic, um, these elements are specifically not looking, being looked at in the inquiry. There is a challenge for them to cover Northern Ireland. It's, you know, there's a judicial review about that. It's not seemed to have got anywhere as such, but yeah, there's, it's very clear that there was a, a huge amount of cooperation between police forces for the deployment of these officers. And Kennedy himself has said that the entire thing they were involved in doing was like a hammer to crack a nut in that it was so over the top what they were doing. And I mean, that's why they got disbanded really and truly. I think the phrase was they'd lost their moral compass. Mm. Am I right on that, Tom? Well, well I, mean, I, I think mean, that was the spin at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting one. I think um, I think we we are more possible than they can powerfully imagine, you know? Um, and I think that that's really, that's really key that, um, yeah, sure. Like at the end of the day, we're just talking about small groups of people going around with banners and maybe like the odd crowbar, like kind of doing a little bit of daring direct action at most, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. not, this isn't like, um, you know, it would be a stretch to call any of it revolutionary activity, regardless of what the rhetorics some of us might've come out with over the years. But it, it's more like if, if, if the British state was willing to tolerate, um, the, the formation and like the the continuation of these kind of movements, then you know it wouldn't have such a stranglehold on British society. You know, I mean, it's, it's very telling that they, they they did no work in um, in in like, infiltrating the far right, so, at least in the early days. Later on, there was a little bit here and there, but there was no desire from uh, from, from the, the cops to infiltrate the far right. And we can see in Britain how, like, what was, at the end of the day, as much as everybody talks about how popular the National Front were in the 1970s, these were never particularly popular movements. Now, you compare that to the movements they were infiltrating. Mm. You know, the uh, the anti-apartheid movement had huge popular support. That was smashed by undercover cops. The Troops Out movement against the deployment of soldiers in Northern Ireland had huge popular support. That was smashed by undercover cops. Um, we see that the, you know, the left is systematically destroyed, disabled, undermined, by undercover cops, which it, it, it creates a situation where, you know, we have no institutional memory but, uh, on the left, particularly. Part of it, too, is is climate uh, climate activist mm, groups. Now, yeah. if you're going to say that climate activism is, is predominantly a, a left-wing activity, mm. I mean, that's saying an awful lot about the ethos of your government. Right, yeah, totally. I mean, like, it, uh, one statistic that always sticks out to me is, you know, um, recently the um, popular, in, like, kind of the, the the concern about cl climate change has finally surpassed the previous high level of, in, of concern about it, which was in 1989. Um, you know, in the late 80s, there was huge levels of public concern about the reality of climate change. There was plenty of understanding that we, I mean, we've got more examples now. We've got more, like, you know, definite dates about, like, kind of how you know, um, what one degree means, what two degree means, all that kind of stuff. But we knew, I mean, we've known for a bloody long time, but, but the, the population uh, 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 no, Tom, Tom, you're in Wales. You, yeah, they used to be told that, listen, the reason the miners do so well is the coal actually coats the lungs. They did do that. Yeah, They got a few decades out of that argument. Like they sure. the, the doctors queue up and do it. But um, just like, uh, again, the attacks on the left kind of make sense if you're saying the establishment versus this. But my point being, I suppose, this is a whole other level of coercion. This is mm. infiltration. It's having children. 
It's, mm. it's having children. So it's sexual exploitation as well mm. as everything else. It's emotional mm. coercion. And then it's to the point whereby and you're saying, we also want to keep a lid on this. So these mm. people, can I ask you, were they expressing kind of, you know, oh, you know, uh, appe- appeasement strategies or, or, you know, easing the easing back things. If you wanted to, if you wanted to go out, I, Martin, remember a few couple of years ago, we spoke to the lads that they used to spend their weekends running around trying to stop fox hunts. Yes. And, yes. you know, you obviously you couldn't use names because this is what the guys were doing. They were like, mm. but, but like, I can imagine someone simply either hitting them in the head with something which they regularly got beaten, Martin, as you know, and the police never did anything to help them, obviously. But on the flip side, um, I just have an image of a spy cop in a meeting going, why don't we send a strongly worded letter instead? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like there's, um, there's a real, um, there's a real cross section. Um, one of the things that we've really discovered is the lack of direction that most of these undercover cops really had for how they behaved when they were deployed undercover. Um, certainly my experience with Marco Jacobs was kind of like that. I mean, it was never like a strongly worded letter. He always kind of kept up with the rhetoric, but it was always like, let's get to the pub as quickly as we can, lads. Do you know what I mean? It was, yeah, it yeah. was always first to the bar. You know what I mean? Um, but like it was Kennedy is someone who's much more of an Arjun provocateur character. Um, the diff- the different strokes, different folks. I mean, whatever they thought was most effective in like bringing these groups I, down. I, I, meant uh, so- to, I, I meant to say something about Kennedy again before mm. we just wanted to come back. He had a role, as I I said earlier, in supplying delivery materials to a squad prior to the May Day protest in 2004 Mm. in Ireland, which Mm. was then used as evidence against two British activists arrested in the squad later that night. That is like, that is crazy. Like when you think about, put all that in context, like, like that. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. You were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, wow. So, um, yeah, like, I mean, when I hear that and I just think to myself, you know, Martin, you know what my feelings on the special criminal court are? Yes, of course. It, sh- it, sh- yeah. it shouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, but here we have this, this manipulation actually playing out and then that being used as evidence later mm. on. I, I'd like to return to what you were saying, Tony, about the activity in Ireland and ask Tom, Tom, in the inquiry, has anything at all emerged about the activity in Ireland or is it just a, a, a closed chapter in all of this? Well, it's interesting, you know, because like it's supposedly it's not part of the remit. It's outside the terms of reference. It's meant to simply refer to England and Wales, um, this inquiry. Um, obviously, it's impossible for them to separate out the activities yes. in Ireland, uh, particularly the North. Um, so the inquiry so far has only covered events up to 1982. Um, and there's, but there, we've already heard about like kind of uh, the infiltration of, of Irish solidarity groups, uh, most notably the Irish National Liberation Solidarity Front which was a fairly small group um, in the early 70s in, in London. Um, but they were sending over um, like groups of, of, of London-based activists over to the north to like do work alongside Republican groups in Ireland. Um, the biggest sort of like uh, infiltration of, a, of, of an Irish solidarity group really was the Troops Out movement, where an officer called Rick Gibson, uh, real name Richard Clark, um really did a i mean one of the most i mean he, he really set out a certain blueprint of how these undercover cops operated he i mean he was he was sent out into walthamstow in london uh, where there wasn't a troops out movement group so he set one up himself um uh, then he got himself in a situation where he ended up as like the um the coordinator of all the london groups of the troops out movement before through essentially a number of sexual relationships that he developed with various other members of other groups, um, got himself 
as the national secretary and coordinator of the whole of the Troops Out movement um, by about 1976. Um, you know, from that moment on, the entirety of the Troops Out movement is directed by undercover cops. Well. That's a that is a bit, and I know Walthamstow. I lived just down the road at one stage. I lived in Forest Gate, so I know Walthamstow quite well. I mean, to, to think that that was kind of the the headquarters of the troops. I mean, it's truly mind blowing. It really is mm. truly mind blowing, and that he was behind it all. But, is there I, any hope that justice will be done, Tom? <laughs> None whatsoever. I would argue. I mean, like the, the thing is, right. Like I said, when we first started, like uh, trying to kind of get to some truth about this, just n- being like, like proving we weren't conspiracy theorists, we weren't nuts, was like a win in itself, you know. And like uh, letting like the historical records show that this actually happened is an achievement. And like every tidbit of information, every time we can like kind of contextualize and further understand the way in which special branch and these particular units operated in terms of undermining dissent is. I mean, it's not fucking justice. Sorry, uh, but it's, yeah, it's not okay. justice. Yeah. But it, it's like, but it is. Uh, it's an opportunity to like kind of write the record at, at, at the very least. Draw a line. Draw a line. Yeah. Even so I mean, there have been a number of people who have got convictions uh, who have had their cases referred to the court of appeal. I mean, in most cases, well, they don't well, really well, care. Well, I'm looking at one headline that I saw before we came on that said apartheid protesters' convictions mm. were quashed after 51 years. Yeah. Yeah. 51 years i mean martin, martin i'm looking on the on the wall above us, me here you can't see it but there's the um they were called the most dangerous shop workers in the world that's which right is, which yeah, gun yeah. stores apartheid uh strikers mm. the women who refused mm. to sell apartheid uh trade in the dun stores in, in dublin 35 years ago imagine imagine mm. That's mm. that's thirty five years ago, fifty one years, Martin, mm. to, 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 and looking for that. Like a, I'm kind of d- despairing, Tom. Whatever you'll find out in the UK, we'll find out nothing here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's very telling that like th- those people you talk about. Um, you know, I've spoken to them, and like they're like, I mean, really, like in the scheme of things, that is like, I mean, uh, the, the the one guy was like, look, I don't care, man. Do you know what I mean? I've got like, it was a it was a piddling offence. It was 51 years ago. There's such a greater injustice than everything else. I don't really care about that. I mean, obviously, they, they chased it down because, you know, this is part of the, did they the campaign. Take any, did they take any big scalps across all the years, Tom? Was there ever a big scalp? Was there ever a success story for them? Well, see, I mean, this is the thing. Like, normally, undercover policing follows a certain sort of playbook, right? You get, like, uh, when, when it's, like, criminal. Um, you're, you're trying to build a case, yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. And you get this day in court where there's the guy who was the rat, and he's there, and he's like, it was him and it was him and all this shit right well, it doesn't it doesn't happen like that no not way. at all not at all not even slightly um quite the opposite they're literally there to gather intelligence uh and you know undermine and then move on and essentially pass on to someone else what we found was was if you had one undercover cop in your life after five years you were getting another one you know because the intelligence he built on you and everybody around you was useful to the next guy you know um but yeah, they, they would never. They, they specifically didn't do that. Um, what I mean, what they what they did do is like like you say about Kennedy just not being there at the, the squat where he knew things were. Um, there's there's been plenty of cases of that kind of thing, but no, like the, the, there was never a time where you could go like ah uh, because no, we, the we, we, we revealed this. We landed a kingpin. We have an arch. Right, never happened. 
But Never can, I, can I can I speak to two issues that we kind of haven't mentioned and we probably should before we wrap this up? One is also the race element in this. Mm. They, they definitely did seem to target, um, you know, any sort of any campaigns for justice for people of color, black mm. people and, and mm. uh, other race, racial identities. And then the second part was the fact that. And again, I, I'm saying this and I'm looking at Lucy and, 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 and knowing that they treated women. As 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 other really Lucy, mm. sorry, come on in there. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, just to say, like, I mean, I think this is a really special moment in that we are getting an insight into something we don't usually get any insight into. And I know that the British authorities are trying their hardest to keep the information out, but you are actually getting more information mm. than we've ever had about mm. this type of undercover policing. Mm. And um, this is also happening at a time where. I think it has to be recognized that misogyny and police violence against women is a mm. problem. Mm. Um, but what concerns me about this uh, spy cop situation is that the UK media is trying not to cover it nearly, it seems. Mm. It's mm. not in the Irish media at all. They don't want to talk about it. Um, but when you take something like um, the uh, Wayne Cousins murdering, murdering Sarah Everett, mm. um, that's everywhere. Mm. Um, and to me, the difference with those things is is that the police and the authorities want to make this bad, bad apple. So they want mm. a monster they can point to and say, look, this, this man's a monster, this man's a bad apple, multiple bad apples. They don't want to address the fact that it's actually a rotten orchard where they're growing all these apples. And this spy cops situation really shows really clearly that this was not individual roads. Mm. This was uh, the institution of policing, planning, organising larger group of people to um, do various disgusting things, including sexually exploit women. Um, and they had no issue with it. And mm. in Ireland now, we have the um, Police and Security and Community Safety Bill coming up. And um, unfortunately, in Ireland, we, ha we have kind of, you know, weak oversight and very little transparency of policing, even less transparency than you do have in the UK, because we can't, we can't even use the freedom of information against police here, mm. um, apart from a couple of exceptions. So. I think it's really important that this story isn't buried and that people ask questions, um, not just about what, what happened with these spy cops, but what, what happened, what's happening now? Mm. We've got mm. our guard commissioner, um, mm. you know, what, what prompted my initial interest in this was last year. There was a huge number of sort of undercut of the cops going in uh, to visit sex workers po uh, posing as clients, you know? Um, and, you know, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was hearing there's going to be undercover cops in the pubs to look for drug users. And so it feels like we're at this moment in time where nobody's questioning what's wrong with undercover cops. Is it necessary? Shouldn't there be some rules around this? Shouldn't there be some transparency? It's yeah. just being assumed that undercover cops are fine. And this spy cops uh, situation really shows that undercover cops are not fine. And we need to have some transparency and we need to talk about whether it's necessary um because you know a huge amount of these operations seem unnecessary to me it's not we need police reform on the matters so they simply shouldn't be happening Absolutely. Um, just lucy i want to come in and say on that i i'm so glad you picked up because i i had kind of i'd seen it and i hadn't reacted the idea that police were going to come into pubs and try and sting people you know for, for drug use the idea that you come back to last year, Electric Picnic, one of the big fest festivals we have, and whatever your feelings are, they said, we're going to have 
We do a lot of work with Analifi, the you know the harm reduction drug, decrim. We want to introduce decrim in Ireland, and they said we're going to have these things. We can test the drugs. That's right. That's and the guard right. said, and the guard said, uh, no, you can't. <laughs> You're like, no, oh. no. They said you can. Yeah. But you test positive. We're we're going to be standing at the door. Like, who's bringing their drugs? Who's going to bring over the thing to make sure it's safe if the guard is standing at the door? And so, yeah, no, it's, it's, and, and we have to, we have to wise up to this because, like, it's very clear that while this is predominantly a British story and, and thanks to Tom for talking about it, there must be implications for the Irish, for the Irish policing system because we see that there, there are already evidence has been used for things that happened in Ireland to, to as part of the story. So we, we can't think of her immune. So, so no, thanks for that. But to, to the misogyny in it, though, as well, Lucy, if I could, it seems to be like you mentioned, Sarah Ever, Everard. We talked about that. We know about the, the police officer that recently was, you know, seems to have been operating in in plain view of his colleagues for, for what, 15, 20 years and, and the stuff that's happening. But, um, it's, it's kind of, it's really grim when you think that like we're talking about this as if it was historic, but it's not, it's, 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 it's right now today. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's impacting us today. And um, I wish I could pronounce the surname. Maybe I should put it in chat. There's one Irish academic I feel like I should give a shout out to because he is working on this a bit. It's I'm going to pronounce his name very badly and I apologize in advance. It's uh, Dr. Kian O'Conkubair, who is at the um, University of Mainu. But he's okay, looking yeah. specifically at um, you know policing a process, protest and the sociology of political dissent and state responses. and I know he's been following some of that stuff, and I think we've got a lot of parallels here in terms of um, the what you're describing, Tom, of the uh, of this exclusive targeting of the left and a different treatment of the left mm. for right. And I think you know he's certainly pointed out some instances I've seen where um, you know protesters are treated differently in Ireland, mm. uh, depending you know which which, which uh, political side they're on, and, and that's. Um, we do have deep problems with um, policing being political and police to an extent, you know, still representing the the establishment and doing the work of the establishment and perhaps oppressing the working classes, you know, and, and not. Um, and so th- th- these issues really do exist in um, Ireland. Um, our policing followed, you know, like Vicky Con- Dr. Vicky Conway would always have said, you know, we've got a new name, we've got a new force, but it was actually the same people at the top. And we still haven't got accountability. Um, and we still haven't got transparency. And we have to fight for accountability and transparency because it's scary how much power the police have and how unchecked it's going. Um, and I cannot even imagine the hor- how horrific the experiences that these women that were targeted by. But, you know, I know when I was a sort of 18-year-old working in a bar in Dublin, you know, I find the guards scary the way to come in flashing my guard cards, looking for free drinks and what have you. You know, I, I found it scary as a young woman then. Um, and, you know, I, I just, we need to have some transparency here and some respect um, and to admit that we've got some problems that we need to address or we're going to mm-hmm. continue on like this. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that we can, um, mm-hmm. in the UK and Ireland, get some more accountability out of our police and some more transparency and also reduce policing 
um, mm. because um, I think it is fair to say that um, there are some policing that is unnecessary that shouldn't be happening, but there should be decriminalisation of certain things. That, um, and it's not a case of reform that's needed. It's a case of we need the police out of some of our businesses. The mm. expansion of the police over the last hundred or so years has been too much. <laughs> mm. That's a very good point, Lucy. Mm. Tom, one last question for you. You're pretty sure now that they've stopped all this undercover activity, that none of this is happening anymore. Oh, not at all. No, no, quite the opposite. Um, I mean, what we do know is that when um, uh, the National Public Order Intelligence Unit was finally wound up with the exposure of Mark Kennedy, um, it was put into uh, under a counterterrorism command. Um, we know that there's huge levels of covert policing, which... Over the last, you know, what what is it, like uh, 14 years, there's been, you know, a tremendous increase in the ability for covert policing to act without, like, um, the cop in your home. You know, they, they they can use all these other things, all this technology we now carry around with us everywhere yeah. to, to monitor people. Um, and we know that it's not – a lot of people think of that in terms of algorithms, you know. Um, it, it It's not. There's huge numbers of officers employed. Okay, they're on a, They're working via computer screens rather than on the on the on the street so much. Though, again, you know that's that exists as well. Um, one thing we've really we've got a new we've got a new liberal police force in the UK. Huge amounts of work is subbed out to private contractors, and whereas at one time you know you you might have had like um, informers and grasses and stuff, the role of the professional infiltrator has grown exponentially. Um, and there's a great deal more of, you know, like when Mark Kennedy um, was exposed, he was no longer a police officer by that point. He'd spent the previous 18 months, two years as a private contractor with a group, with an, uh, a business he set up called Global Open, um, where he was selling information to corporations, to the police, um, carrying on his same role, using his same identity. I mean, arguably, if he was still a police officer, he probably wouldn't have been as sloppy and wouldn't have got caught out. But he wasn't as getting as much paperwork, as much backup as he was when he was a cop. I mean, all that kind of stuff is still very live, um, very much a thing. Um, I and I'm just coming back to what you were just saying about the institutional sexism and the institutional misogyny, and like and and kind of allied to that, the the institutional racism of the police. Please, yeah, we're, we're never really gonna. We're never going to solve this problem um, unless we actually. It, it's much deeper than just like what this unit did, what that unit did. There's a there's a much deeper, and I mean like it's it's bigger than the police, right? It's 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 about the whole state. It's about the whole establishment. It's and it's it's, it's about like I mean in, in a big way, man. It's it's about like um, male cultural norms, right? About about othering of women, uh, about using women, about how like you know. As it, it, if you set up an institution like this, of course they're going to be a fucking rape gang. You give a, bunch, give a bunch of blokes this opportunity, they're going to turn into a bunch of fucking rapists. That's what they're going to do. You any you can't set up like a fucking woke police force to do this kind of work. It's not going to fucking exist. They're going to go out there. They're going to abuse people. That's what they're going to do. And until we actually fundamentally change the way in which all that is, we're still going to have this problem. Do you know what I mean? Um. Thanks for very much for coming on. And Lucy, thank you very much for arranging this conversation. It has been enlightening. I've learned some things about it. Um, what can we say? We hope for the future, Tom, that you find out as much as you can, that the people that were hurt and damaged get some sort of, of compensation to ease that. You can never solve it. All you can do is ease it. And Nostar to you, Tom, thank you very much for having this conversation with us. Nostar, Kaliads. 
Uh, listen, folks. I oh, look before we wrap. I do want to. Tom would love to talk to you again about about this. I think this we've only really scratched the surface on this, and I think there's a lot more that needs to be put out there. But if you're listening to this now and your your mind's not a little bit more open to it, you need to understand that this is the world that we continuously talk about on on the tortoise shack across the tortoise shack. The idea that the state are doing these things. Um, it's very real. It's very, it's very, very uncomfortable for us to understand that 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 is what they're doing. But we only have to look at more recent examples of some of the things that have happened in our own police force, within our own police force, to their own and to yeah. others. Mm. And we don't have to. We don't have to think too imaginatively to see what's actually happened. These are the realities and the facts, and who was held accountable. It's very, very few people are are held accountable. So look, look, please, please, please. Check do check out Tom's podcast because I only discovered it. I won't lie. I told him earlier. I only discovered the last twenty four hours, and it's it's really really great. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm I know about you for ages, Tom. <laughs> I was listening. Don't and, mind it. I used to, it's so slow and, and all of and, this stuff. And and Lucy, thank you again for arranging this, and thanks for the work you guys um, do at, at Ugly Mugs. Please, can I say thank you so much to Tom for giving your time to educate yep. us on this difficult subject. And thank you, Martin and Tony, for everything you do constantly to bring this such important information and stories um, to people. So huge gratefulness. Thank you very much, everyone. Listen, folks, we are. Um, this is this is how the uh, I spoke with Hannah McCarthy in. She's in the West Bank today, but we're coming up on the one year anniversary of Shreem Allah Akbar. I can probably ruin you have right. name. You have it right. Um, but but and she's having she's ha- she was having lunch with some of the people who worked with her. So we're hoping to bring you a little report on that in the next 24 hours as well. So uh, we'll get that to you as soon as we can. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Subscribe now on Patreon.